This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we're facing the catastrophe of war and occupation in Ukraine, Russia's uh, murderous rampage against Ukrainian uh, men, women, and children, as well as their, their ragtag team of military, uh, continue unabated. It's getting worse as we speak now. Hundreds of uh, civilians have been killed. Lviv and Kursan and uh, Kharkiv are in the throes of uh, a brutal attack as we speak. And Odessa is is kind of on the precipice right now of uh, of an attack. The the Russian uh, war and occupation of Ukraine has caused uh, kind of ripple effects throughout the world, as we know. The United States, NATO, and allies are attempting to uh, institute economic sanctions uh, against uh, Russia and Putin and the oligarchs. We're going to be talking about that as well as some political consequences of that. It's making some very strange uh, bedfellows. But um, I hate to say this, Jamal, but uh, I, I, my predictions, unfortunately, are proven correct. Putin has no intention of stopping. And if anybody wants any kind of perspective on what's going to happen in Ukraine, look to what happened in Chechnya. He, he brutally massacred and used a vicious uh, firepower on innocent civilians, men, women, and children. He's doing it now in Ukraine. This is not going to stop. This is going to be a bloodbath. Well, we'll talk more about his, uh, actually, his new demands. As you know, uh, the two previous attempts of to negotiate uh, an end to the conflict, just uh, now we're on the 12th day, right. uh, proved uh, fr- fruitless. So there was the third meeting, which we'll, we'll talk about, it, and then uh, Putin basically delivered his demands to end, the, to end hostilities. But first, uh, we're going to talk to our guest, Dr. Hatem Bazian, who is the executive director uh, uh, for the Islamophobia Studies Center and also a professor at Zaytuna College and lecturer at UC Berkeley. And he has written a very interesting article uh, uh, called Ukraine and Fanon, Racism is Atmospheric in Western uh, Narrative, basically. So uh, let's uh, listen to Dr. Bazian. Europe's history is a long book filled with violence and very bloody. Europe had two world wars in the last century alone. The second one had Germany using ovens in Europe to burn people in the Holocaust and two nuclear bombs dropped on Japan for a never experienced single moment of civilian mass killing. This is an excerpt from the article Ukraine and Fanon, Racism is Atmospheric in Western Discourse, written by Dr. Hatem Bazian, Executive Director of the Islamophobia Studies Center. Dr. Bazian is also professor at Zaytuna College and a lecturer in Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures and Asian American Studies at UC Berkeley. Welcome again to Arab Talk, uh, Dr. Bazian. Oh, thank you. And it's good to see you, Jamal. It's been some time. Yes, I mean, now we have to do everything, uh, you know, remotely. 
Your yeah. recent article exploring the colonial mindset uh, that devalues non-white victims of war and other disasters starts with referencing Franz Fallon, and I want to just uh, kind of shed some light on who is Fla uh, Franz Fallon, a French-educated psychiatrist from Martinique who, while growing up in Martinique, witnessed and experienced abuse and degradation by French military who inhabited the island uh, during World War II. He describes the colonial mindset as an all-encompassing white supremacist entitlement that justifies exploitation of non-whites due a fundamental self-perceived superiority. Falton is considered one of the definitive uh, commentators on colonialism, uh, Dr. Bazian. Tell us why he is important. Well, uh, Franz Fanon is possibly one of the uh, most significant uh, uh, critics of colonization, as well as uh, foretelling the post-colonial world. Uh, his book, The Wretched of the Earth, is uh, still uh, possibly one of the most significant pieces of literature to look and critique uh, colonization. Now, Fanon is also unique that uh, he was actually uh, sent to Algeria uh, mm. to work as a clinical psychiatrist uh, from, uh, under the French colonial uh, regime to deal with those who face torture, uh, in Algeria, Muslim uh, Muslims in Algeria, uh, but he immediately began to actually see also the predicament of the, those who face torture, but also the torturers. He ended up actually joining the Algerian Liberation Movement and was one of its uh, key contributors serving as the spokesperson uh, for the Algerian movement. So there are two individuals in the Algerian movement from outside that in terms of uh, contribution. Franz Fanon is one, and then Iqbal Ahmed from Pakistan. Right. Both are major contribution uh, in that field. Now, Fanon also has a number of books uh, on, in addition to uh, Wretched of the Earth, Black Skin, White Masks. Uh, this looks at the whole phenomena or internalization of racism and the double consciousness. Uh, he also had a book, The Dying Co uh, Colonialism, and Toward the African Revolution. So if you take his work collectively, uh, really he is one of those profound thinkers in the uh, 50s to the 60s. He died young uh, from cancer, uh, but his material is still the subject of writing, research, and so on. The piece that I wanted to link Fanon to is this, uh, he writes in his uh, Wretched of the Earth on, viol on violence, he says that violence in the colonial structure is atmospheric. And this is also to make a distinction because we, when we think of violence, and this would be also operable to Palestine, you get a, somebody that's jumping and says, well, it's peaceful today, right? Meaning there is no uh, response from the colonized. But the colonized experience of violence is atmospheric. It is total. It actually confines their, uh, uh, just the, the air they breathe is filled with violence. And as such, violence as atmospheric, I borrowed and stretched the concept of Fanon to speak about how racism 
is atmospheric. It's inescapable. It is touches everything. It's everywhere. It is the air, the space, the sight that you experience. And I wanted to make this direct connection because as the uh, uh, Russia's attack on the Ukraine uh, developed, many of these Western reporters uh, and um, journalists began to speak in civilizational terms. Uh, speaking about that this is not a place like Iraq, Syria, and so on, where violence is experienced. This is this, this, this was actually my, my second question, yes. really, is to talk about, uh, you know, the connection of atmospheric and its uh, perseviousness uh, you caught in that, that it colors the entire societal construct. Uh, and, and that's exactly like, how do you see that playing? Uh, with the reaction to the invasion of, of Ukraine and the news coverage? Well, it's precisely the notion. One is speaking of that this is not Iraq, Syria, and so on. This is not a place that is used to violence. And this is very important because Fanon's work, as well as others, there is a distinction between the civilized world and the world of the savage and the barbarian. The world of the Northern Hemisphere, Europe, United States, Canada, versus the places where, uh, in essence, are the places where violence is uh, seen as the norm, as almost pathological. But this view of civilized, savage, civilized barbarian, you could see it in the work of Edward Said, Orientalism, and so on. It makes the distinction, only is, the distinction is possible if you have a complete erasure. It's almost amnesia, where you forget the realities of Europe. And that's the quote that you started the show with in the sense of saying that uh, Europe's history is bloody history. In essence, if you think about the uh, period, the long period of, of history is one chapter after another of violence, of bloodthirst, of complete destruction, so much so that we did not have a regular war. They had to actually have world wars. They had to have a complete destruction so that amnesia in there, so the description in terms of the geography, that this is not a geography of violence, the geography is violence, belongs to the darker people. It is also identifying the refugees. You know, all the refugees have to be treated uh, correctly and appropriately. All refugees have to provide the service. All refugees have to be given the comfort fleeing from war. But the descriptions of the refugees began to focus on their physical characteristics, their blonde, blonde hair, blue eyes, like us. This is at a time where Europe has become fortress Europe. It's built, uh, you know, as we speak about the Ukrainian refugees correctly to attend to them, there are massive numbers of darker skinned refugees from the global south, from North Africa, from Sudan, Ethiopia, Senegal, uh, Congo, from, from Afghanistan, Syria, that are locked up in literally prisons and detention centers in Italy, in Greece, in Spain, in uh, France itself. You have all these uh, refugees that are not given any uh, uh, actual papers or a way to formalize themselves. So the distinction becomes on the physical characteristics, which is a white supremacist view of looking at the Ukraine and seeing it as part of us versus the other who could be dispensed with and using civilizational language to describe them. In the, in the example of the Polish and Spanish uh, parliament, 
the discussions about that we don't want to admit Muslims, that not a single let, Muslim. Let me use this quote, actually, just yeah. to remind our uh, uh, listeners and viewers, uh, viewers you're mentioning, and this is from the Spanish politician in the, in, 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 in the parliament. And while others, by the way, they were clapping. And mm -hmm. this is what he said. These are real refugees, women, children and elderly should be welcomed in Europe. Now everyone should understand the difference between these refugees and the invasion of Muslim youth of military age who have crossed our borders trying to destabilize and colonize Europe. Well, again, that's, that's precisely the point uh, that makes a distinction between what is good immigrant, good refugee, uh, and in one, one quote, that these are high quality immigration versus the low grade immigration or the threat immigration or the immigration or refugees that are intent on replacement theory. So this actually fits into this whole Islamophobic, anti-Muslim, uh, uh, anti but also deeply, deeply heard uh, white supremacist racism that you are seeing articulated, whether it's in the Spanish, in the French, or in the Polish uh, political uh, leadership that is, in essence, refusing uh, to uh, normalize Muslims, Arabs, uh, Africans' access into refugee status, while in this actually almost opening its borders. We got also reports of uh, uh, Arab and foreign uh, African students who are caught on the border in Poland, not being allowed entry, not being allowed to actually move uh, through with other refugees. In some images that came where they're actually being thrown out of the train, trains, uh, the trains that are moving to try to take other, uh, some of the refugees across Europe. So in the moment of the crisis where a human-centric approach should be taken, what we have is racism, white supremacy, this uh, racism being atmospheric is actually comes out and becomes the norm. Now, and here I wanted to point that many of these reporters are being sensitive or the person from NBC is saying, uh, I want to be choose my word carefully. Right. Now, now if he was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Degada, I think his name. He wants to choose his words carefully. I wonder if you're choosing his word carefully and this is what he comes, I, we wonder about, what would be in, after he sits down and have dinner, what would be his dinner conversation? In here, pointing out that is atmospheric is that it's unnoticeable. That is the completely lack of notice on their part, these reporters and so on, that are being sensitive uh, in this moment that they are, cannot help but express that deeply, deeply held racist, white supremacist view and it passes as a way to report on a major crisis that we have uh, in, in Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Why is uh, why is this denial really like? I mean, even, even we take it if, if we look at Europe's history. I mean, uh, you know, when uh, wars, basically World War One, World War Two, uh, you know, alone resulting in close to one hundred million deaths in Europe. This is part of the history, you know, and 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 were basically the reason why the European Union was created <clears throat> and mm -hmm. even NATO, but yet there is that denial of the 
you know, we're the civilized, you know, you know, you know, uh, we shouldn't have wars here and death and destruction just happens in the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere. elsewhere. Why, why is there that just kind of denial? Well, uh, I think there are a number of ways, a number of things that we need to think. One, uh, in general, they don't educate or they don't teach uh, history as history in the sense of European history or U.S. history or the history of the West vis-a-vis the world. So there isn't an actual focus or in a complete uh, examination of history. Even here, if you think about this, us in the United States, we don't he- teach the genocide of the indigenous people. Just recently, there's beginning to be some discussion. We definitely are trying to avoid teaching and confronting the long history of enslavement and the trauma that has been visited upon the black community and continues to be so. There is a complete erasure denial of that. Uh, more importantly is this notion of exceptionalizing history exceptionalizing European history and American history, which makes us that even if there is these moments of what you call utter complete destruction, that these are incidental. They're done in good, what you call in good spirit, in essence, to build civilization. So there is this modernity civilizational discourse that is compared or being positioned against uh, the realm of the barbarian, the, the realm of the sum, subhuman, the areas that are uh, uh, inhabited by the savage. So in this sense, there is that uh, distinction, exceptionalism, erasure that uh, takes place. Lastly, or at least uh, thirdly, we could speak about that the violence that is manifested is almost bureaucratized. That's, it's a bureaucratic structure of violence that on the individual levels and uh, societal level, it's almost that you are completely clinically removed from it. So it's it's almost out of out of mind, out of sight, and uh, it's also on an industrial state uh, scale as a, as a structure of violence that sometimes we uh, don't examine it or come into direct confrontation with it. And let me add also that the discussions about Ukraine and Russia is saying that this did not happen, does not happen in Europe. And this is also that in 1992-95, we have another genocide that took place in Europe, the Bosnian genocide, 300,000 that were uh, slaughtered with the United Nations from Western powers being actually deployed in there, especially the uh, massacre in Srebrenica. Uh, close to 8,000 that were completely slaughtered with the UN actually either looking their way or providing uh, a uh, what you call an international cover with 60,000 women also being raped and rape being used as an instrument of uh, of uh, war. And that's in the heart of Europe. You know, the notion of never again, the question is what is the never again that the European, that Europe continues to actually time and time again repeat it if anything, that violence in the European context is so normal that the absence of violence is the exception rather than the other way around. And I'm not yet dealing with the long history of colonial violence, the genocides that have been committed during the colonial period, whether it is in the Congo with King Leopold or the British in terms of their uh, 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 complete genocide that's committed both against the indigenous populations in the Western Hemisphere, but also the... uh, uh, death and destructions in their colonial period in India, uh, and then their uh, 
pushing drugs on China. They arrived on China's coast, not as liberator, but as uh, really opium dealers uh, in this sense. So if you look at the long history of colonization, even outside of Europe, it's one of the most bloody, bloody uh, episode in human history. How much does the role of Islamophobia uh, play in it? Uh, I mean, you're a world leader on the Islamophobia studies. Uh, you've been in France, you've been in Europe, you've seen what's going on now during the elections in France, in other mm -hmm. European capitals. And then this comes that somehow I see a distinction between just <clears throat> plain old racism and colonialism, and then, then there is something specific that is specifically Islamophobic. In here, uh, it definitely we're seeing a very clear Islamophobic uh, imaginary today across Europe. Uh, having said that, that European discourse have always used uh, anti-Muslim Islamophobia historically, anti-Jewish in terms of anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness as a discourse. And then in between all other areas of colonizations were also in there. Uh, the colonization project was always previewed or structured around a number of concepts. Uh, one is the civilization concept, the white man's burden. Uh, so the white man's burden it is a burden only once we accept that the white man is the civilized and therefore everybody else is not civilized. So that is one important aspect of colonization, colonial discourse. The second is the constant presence and constructing of fear of the Muslim subject. You could go back to the Crusades, right? The Crusades, again, uh, speech of uh, Pope Urban II, he specifically said this about the Muslims, these are a cursed race. Uh, while saying that Europe is a small place that does not have its resources, so we need to actually go out on a crusade in order to bring resources to Europe. So it was both Islamophobic, but also economic uh, projects in there. So the Muslim within European imaginary and thought have always occupied this threat. Uh, threat uh, presenting itself as a contending in the region, uh, whether it's in the Ottoman or even pre-Ottoman period. And then you get the expulsion in Europe in 1492, uh, expulsion of Muslims and Jews in there. So Islamophobia is, can, can be seen as one of that threat that is very root, strongly rooted in uh, modern European uh, thought. And as we get into the 20th century, even the term Islamophobia itself emerges in the French, from the French language, Islamophobie. And then in 1910, speaking about being an, an inimical feeling toward Muslims as the French were colonizing and occupying Muslim territories in North Africa, in Senegal, in uh, uh, West Africa. And uh, what they wanted is to completely uh, remove and extricate Islam out of the society and culture. So it was packaged as a civilizational discourse with a deeply rooted anti-Muslim uh, sentiment. And we speak about the French in Algeria from the uh, 1830s all the way up to 1961. The French killed about six and a half million to seven million Algerians. The last few years of the liberation struggle is about a million and a half Algerians that perished. And the sickness included really taking and severing the heads of resistance movement fighters during the late 1800s and take them and put it in exhibits and in museums all 
in different parts of France. Just recently, they repatriated 23 skulls of these uh, liberation fighters that uh, the French have taken their skulls. So that today the discourse in Europe in terms of what is taking place in Russia and Ukraine is regenerating and having a moment of actually defining what us and using what Islamophobic white supremacist notions in order to advance it. I mean, it is now part of their political debate. I mean, in, in elections, especially in France with the candidates, uh, you know, with a large Muslim population. Uh, I was reading the other day, uh, many Muslims, intellectuals are leaving the country. I mean, they're leaving. This is how much pressure they have been facing. Uh, lastly, I want to talk a little bit more about the media, uh, which I call it almost the walk of shame. There is no apology. There is mm-hmm. no acknowledgement. There is on social media and on what I call alternative media, uh, people are showing examples. I mean, it's all over. You cannot, you, you, you could be even blind and, and hear what's happening. And yet we haven't seen any type of apology or, or acknowledgement and they're just continuing uh, reporting the same way. Uh, why do you think that we have this deafening silence? Oh. Well, again, the media is uh, reflect the dominant elite uh, outlook and the dominant epistemological structure of the society. Our society in the West, the atmosphere that they breathe is reeking with white supremacy and racism. So why would you apologize in terms of the media if you are actually producing the oxygen that everybody breathes in a sense, which is the racist oxygen. Uh, I know that we critique Trump. Uh, Trump, is his crime is that he is crude in his racism. And transparent, that, and transparent. And transparent. Transparent, crude and transparent in the sense that he is not sophisticated uh, to actually use that same type of racist uh, topography to articulate the same notions that many of the media who are seen to be sophisticated, the latte sophistication, the sophistication of sipping, uh, you know, a late afternoon drink and thinking that you are actually representing a higher form of scholarship and intellectual. These are embedded journalists, journalists that are reflective of the wide atmospheric uh, uh, scope of racism, white supremacy, Islamophobic, Uh, discourses that we're seeing, and therefore you're not going to get an apology. Why apologize if this is actually, if you are a fish swimming in the water that gives you life and gives you meaning? So many of these that are producing this, this is the normative. This is like the standard almost operating procedure. And those who might be what you call uh, uh, a little bit less uh, crude, they still are producing the same thing. So you see the sub of uh, coverage in relations to the refugees and compare that co- that coverage with, let's say, the refugees in the Mediterranean or the refugees that drowned on the, uh, in the English Channel or the refugees that are in Calais in the, uh, on the border between, on the Euro Tunnel or the, how the refugees are problematized, uh, thug- made into a thugs that are coming to take over Europe rather than human beings that are escaping. And similarly, think about all of the uh, refugees coverage here on the Mexican-US border and how they're constantly problematized, even among the liberal part, which actually always problematized, try to find a solution. At least the right wing 
you know, you could give them credit. They're just upfront and clear about it. We just hate you and we hate you and we hate you some more. While at least on the Ripple side, well, no, we we're having a problem. So let's find out if we send them to Mexico so they will be dealt with there. So in essence, the same outcome is just the discourse is wrapped around this uh, notions of atmospheric pressure or atmospheric notions of racism and white supremacy that we're seeing. Dr. Hatem Bazian, thank you for sharing your expertise on Arab talk. Thank you. Thank you, Jamal, for having me. I've meant to say, actually, uh, uh, Ukraine fan and racism is atmospheric in Western discourse. I said narrative, but that's the name of the article. So if people want to look it up. Yes, and it's a it's an excellent article, Jamal. And uh, you know, I, I know you and I are sharing similar reactions. I'm still, you know, the uh, the the catastrophe that's unfolding in the, in Ukraine right now is is really painful and difficult to watch. And the lack of the Western response, uh, you know, on the one hand, yes, they're marshalling all of these uh, economic sanctions and trying to get in more. Uh, military support for the Ukrainians. But the reality is, is that this is brutal. The Western response in some ways has been has been weak. But still, having watched that, the painful racist discourse where people are up in arms of this occupation of, uh, of a country, but we notice painful silence with the occupation of Palestine, with Syria, what's going on in Yemen, and in other parts of the world, and this is part of what uh, Professor Bazian is is trying to get at. It's just like, well, yeah, this is really horrific, and we need to stand up against this brutal occupation. Yet at the same time, you know, when 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 Palestinians in Gaza were being slaughtered uh, during the 2009, 2012, 2014, and continue to this day in terms of its brutal occupation throughout historic Palestine, the occupation in the Golan Heights in Syria, we hear a deafening silence from the West. This is going to run into some problems. And we know that the Israeli political apartheid establishment is really kind of nervous right now. We're going to get to that in a second. But China's occupation of Taiwan, all these different kinds of occupations where the United States lets some occupation slide and supports some apartheid up occupation forces. But when it comes to certain groups, whether they be European or white or blonde or blue-eyed, then the world is up in arms. And I'm afraid, Jamal, that the racist coverage that we spoke about on our last show has continued unabated. There's been no checking of the racist kind of discourse about, oh, the poor Ukrainians, look at how much they're suffering. They're just like us. Yes, but guess what? People are suffering who don't look like you, who don't look like the correspondents on CNN. Not only this, Jess, I mean, we, we talked about the, of course, the Western media coverage, which is dismal and uh, really shameful uh, throughout the past 12 days. But also now we're seeing statements, and this, these are, you know, horrible statements. Uh, I watched a, uh, a parliamentarian in, uh, in, in Spain talking about, uh, you know, how uh, Spain is ready to receive uh, Ukrainian 
refugees, unlike Muslim refugees, and they use it. So we see the Islamophobia, not exactly. only in Ukraine, but also in Poland, just like flat out saying, well, you know, these are white people, these are Europeans, we'll take them in, we don't want the Muslims. And so, I mean, they're not even shy about it. They're not no, even ashamed they're about it. they're not shy it. about it. So it's just straightforward, not only racism, but also Islamophobia. So back uh, to what we're going to be talking about t today, Jess, of course, we, we started by saying, uh, you know, the, uh, the Russian and, 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 and Ukrainian delegations uh, began their talks today. They've ended uh, now. This is uh, on Monday in Belarus, uh, basically aimed to ending the, this, this war that brought uh, ruin to vast areas of, of Ukraine's largest uh, cities. The two other attempts, they just basically uh, basically proved to be fruitless. So this is from a Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who, who yes. revealed today's uh, Russia's uh, uh, demands. And so we want to actually discuss these. So these are actually Russia's demands to end hostilities. One... Ukraine must halt its military activity. Well, of course, we know who has the upper <laughs> hand. But anyway, in other words, lay down their weapons and accept the, the occupation. Two, and that goes back to what Putin has been saying all along. Right. Really. Change right. its constitution to include neutrality so it can't join uh, the EU or NATO, both. Right. He, he wants that. He no longer wants kind of like, let's talk about this or a separate agreement. He wants this to be in the constitution. And I think this is what happened between Russia and Finland. That's right. So it is in the constitution that they're not going to be part of the EU. They're not going to be part of uh, NATO. That's right. Then the third demand is to recognize Crimea as Russian territory, which, I mean, anyway, he's... he's, he's well, those are, all th those are all non-starters, Jamal. They're then, all non-starters. And, and then the last, and then the last demand is recognized independence for the uh, the two separate regions right. of uh, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. So that's that's the fourth. So four demands. I mean, halt military activity, change the constitution, recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and then recognize the independence of the two well, separate regions. Well, not only are those non-starters, Jamal, but it sounds much like the uh, Israeli military demands put on Palestinians who who are trying to defend themselves from a you know state-sponsored onslaught in Gaza, uh, where they asked that you know lay down your weapons in order for there to be a ceasefire when the Israelis had no intention of stopping their armed conflict except occupation, recognize you know historic Palestine is no longer existing. I mean. I, I believe that Putin is taking this right out of the apartheid uh, playbook of the Israelis in terms of how he's playing this and how he's kind of talking about, you know, his narrative about Ukraine and its people and the culture and everything. I think this is right out of their playbook, Jamal. And, and frankly, it's a non-starter because I, I, I know I've said this a number of times, but this is the classic Putin move. He's going to make uh, non-negotiable, non-starting demands, they will not be met. And that's going to be followed by this brutal assault on the totality of Ukraine. He's going to take it over. Well, I, sh I, sh I should add that Putin issued a statement also saying that he 
does not have any plans to end Ukraine as an independent state. But unlike that's, unlike that's a Israel annexing a whole, but he's right. saying that's not that's not what we're looking at. I'm not looking at basically claiming but Ukraine he wants a, as part he wa- of Russia. Sure, sure, but he wants a vassal state. I mean, that's what he right. wants. Right. However, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because there is a difference. The difference is that going back to ni- to the 1990s, uh, basically there was um, I wouldn't say a written agreement, even though actually the Russians have showed minutes of the discussions that they've had about the status of the the states the, the who broke away from the Soviet Union and NATO and and you know and so forth and 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 since 1990 14 out of those states have joined NATO and that wasn't part of the agreement there were That's there right. were minutes about it saying you know uh, it's fine with the 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 unification of east and west berlin and germany east berlin and and west berlin, i mean east germany west berlin and germany but not those republics that used to be part of uh, the ussr no no and, i i think that's a valid point and since do, then Jamal, think- and since then 14 and now they are right at his border with the, with ukraine and he that's just right. like said he's he's saying enough uh, is enough now as far as uh, territorial gains like crimea yeah we know like he basically took over crimea because the, there is a russian majority there and then supposedly these two is, is uh, independent what he wants to have independent states also have uh, more russian population and oh, well allegiance. it's a little I, i'm not sure that's entirely accurate Jamal. what they have is more russian speaking or more bilingual russian communities they are ukrainian uh what russia has done in those uh what you know breakaway regions is the way the russians talk about it the way putin talks about it is he's given hundreds of thousands of russian passports to a lot of these individuals and is kind of counting that in his calculation the point being is that yes your point is very good it's a good devil's advocate point I think we need to understand Putin's perspective on this because his view on it is that he he views NATO as a threat. He views Ukraine as a threat if it joins existential threat as as an even though he it's a you know Russia has a nuclear power is a nuclear power and has far superior military. What I'm trying to articulate is that the West has completely miscalculated Putin yet again. They've mis uh, they've under you know, they they have not just miscalculated, they've underestimated Putin's viciousness. And lastly, I, I think we need to talk about this because I believe that uh, the United States and Europe and NATO have thrown Ukraine and Zelensky under the bus and have uh, that's, used... That, that, that's actually was my uh, our second point. And the question is because did also Zelensky underestimate what Putin was going to do? And did he overestimate the yes. help he was going to receive from yes. the United States and NATO? Absolutely. Absolutely. Zelensky has been thrown under the bus, Jamal, because he's been saying, what's the big deal? We've been we've been we've been at the hands of the you know Putin and the Russians for eight years now. What's the big worry? He completely blew that in terms of his calculation. But if you listen to Zelensky's, uh, you know, daily press conferences, Jamal, he's hammering, hammering the West, as he should, for their lack of will, their lack of support, their lack of, like, urgency in the matter. And 
I I have sad news for President Zelensky. The West is not cannot do anything right now. You, EU or NATO can send Stinger missiles. They can try to get some MiG fighters in there. But I, I I'm I'm very sorry to say this to Zelensky and to the people of Ukraine, but nothing is going to stop Vladimir Putin. If and, and you got to look to history, Putin doesn't bluff. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. He didn't bluff in Chechnya. Chechnya was, you know, there was a murderous campaign in Chechnya, and uh, people, the West, did nothing about that. So I, I'm afraid that despite the heroic depictions in the media of Ukrainian armed militia and their military stand, quote, standing up against Russia, if you had to put zero to 10 on the the power that the Russian military has unleashed so far, it's about one to two out of 10. This is just barely starting, Jamal. This is just barely starting. Well, you're, you're, you're spot on. I've been listening to military experts. Some of them are actually military experts from the United States, general, not the ones that CNN kind of like <laughs> what they want, the same narrative, but others who actually are speaking from a military kind of perspective. They're not taking sides. They're not you know, with Putin, they're not against Putin, whatever. And they're looking at it and they're saying, look, all this talk about, you know, the Russians are, are being stopped and whatever. He, this, it's a joke. Uh, this military expert, uh, he's, a gen, he's a retired general. He was saying, listen, I think um, Putin is not uh, using all his force. He's, he's being not. very careful because he has learned from our experience in Iraq. That's what he said. He knew, he knows that if he destroys the country, destroys the infrastructure, he has to own it. Who's going to repair that? And if they're going to be there for the long run, he doesn't want to go and, and, and right. do to, to uh, Ukraine the same thing that the United States and its allies have done to Iraq. And up till now, they're still rebuilding Iraq and spending exactly. billions and billions exactly. of, of dollars there. But if he sees, which he's, he's been seeing, because the one thing they, they, he acknowledges is that, that also Putin underestimated the reaction of the United States and, and Europe as far as the sanctions that they are keep. And if he says if they keep pushing these sanctions further, like, for example, uh, you start targeting the oil industry in, in, in Russia, which is the big thing, because, you know, like there one thing he said, uh, even, um, you know, uh, Visa and MasterCard and American Express, they've stopped, you know, that's a major inconvenience because now Russian banks are starting to look into issuing cars that operate on a Chinese pay payment system because the <laughs> right. Chinese, so they're going to use that after, you know, American Express, Visa and MasterCard cut off services there. So, so he can circumvent that, but he cannot circumvent the sale of oil global if they're gonna push this hard towards that he's gonna accelerate his his bombing and like what happened right. in chechnya and right. start destroying cities to the ground i mean and well if you, and you've seen he, he has right up the ante in the past three days i would say right yeah you're exactly right jamal and here's the thing if it's a race between cutting off russian oil and the russian military and putin kind of destroying ukraine I don't I I'm afraid to say this and I'm sorry to say this but Russia can unleash its firepower and military supremacy and superiority over the innocent uh, civilian population and infrastructure of Ukraine far faster than the the world can block uh, Russian oil. You still have Shell Oil Company buying Russian oil at discount prices. You still have China and India uh 
China supporting uh, not so, you know, quietly everything that the Russians are doing, even though it's going to come back to haunt them on Taiwan. You have India not saying anything. So, uh, and we haven't even talked about Iran yet and the whole apartheid uh, involvement of the Israeli government in playing a duplicitous game. That world will not get its act together to shut down Russia in enough time is what my worry is. And that the loss of civilian life will be grotesque, and I I really see this kind of balancing act. It's not looking good for Ukraine, Jamal. It just isn't. No, I mean I I think it's the tip tip of the iceberg. Things are going to get much worse before this they get better. And I have to say, some of those military experts and others yeah. they have been saying, listen, you want to end this. Zelensky has to accept those demands. If if he wants to save his own people, if he wants to save and the country himself. and himself, and he, if he doesn't want to just like keep listening to taking his marching orders from the United States or from Europe or from this or from that, because they kind of like, you know, pumped his ego so much that that maybe he has to come down a little bit to earth and and you know I, I don't know i mean this is not our perspective but this is what the experts and the one thing i have to say just and this will take us to our next uh, topic is that i actually been talking to someone in ukraine i cannot bring them on the show because of their safety and security and some of the points that uh, our contact there has been making is that and and he believes that Zelensky was basically duped by the United States and NATO. But also that. he adds to it and he thinks that one of the plans why the Biden administration and European countries, etc., want to go through this besides the, the whole uh, military industrial complex is also to benefit from these sanctions by uh, putting, taking the money out of the oligarch hands and whatever. He has like this whole conspiracy thing, theory about uh, uh, the U.S. and Europe benefiting financially right. from freezing the assets, billions and billions of dollars of Russians, and yeah. which which makes sense because the United States froze the assets of uh, Libyan assets, uh, Iraqi assets, uh, and every you know every conflict. Iranian assets. Iranian assets. Afghan assets. So he, he's saying there are billions and billions of unaccounted billions of dollars that are in in the West, in in American banks and in European banks, and then so there are people who who will benefit uh, because of this, which leads us to to the to uh, talking well, about those oligarchs. Well, Jamal, I just think it's kind of interesting. It, uh, uh, apparently to APAC and to pro-Israel supporters, there's good oligarchs and there's bad oligarchs. Universally, the oligarchs are seeing as, you know, Putin, you know, supporters, uh, syncophants, you know, everybody sees that. But apparently some of these oligarchs have been funding uh, right-wing extremists, uh, settler colonial movements uh, in occupied Palestine. They've been doing a lot of uh, dirty work. Abramovich is one of them. We'll get to him in a second. But it appears that APAC and some of the pre, uh, pro-Israel supporters are willing to not come down hard on the oligarchs that are supporting the apartheid state. That the, the, the stench of hypocrisy, again, coming from Naftali Benef uh, Bennett and the uh, 
the apartheid crew in Israel seems to be, you know, that stench is coming all the way to D.C. right now. Well, uh, let me start by uh, quoting uh, President Biden in his State of the Union address last Tuesday, just and 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 he addressed that point uh, calling out the russian oligarchs directly so so we want to hold him to his words he said tonight i say to the russian oligarchs and corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars of this violent regime no more and there was bipartisan applause when he said that the united states department of justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the russian oligarchs we are joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We are coming for you. Yet, and that's what I mean, <laughs> according, according to, and this is, uh, I think I want to direct people to this uh, very good article in the Jewish Currents uh, publication. Right. It's right. called Our Oligarch. The Israel uh, lobby, just our lobby groups, both in the United States and Canada and Europe, I have to say, they've started their campaign to exempt some of those oligarchs that you're talking about uh, from these sanctions, most notably Roman Abramovich. So, uh, who Forbes in, 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 in 2005 described him as the wealthiest man in Russia and who is also the second wealthiest person in Israel after the widow of Sheldon Adelson. You remember Sheldon Adelson? Of course. Since he acquired Israeli uh, citizenship in 2018. The question to you, Jess, is why? Well, we know why, because uh, Abramovich has been funding and sending millions and millions of dollars funneling and and through shell organizations and hiding money, a lot of his wealth through various uh, Israeli organizations, including extremist settler, violent settler movements who have been stealing Palestinian land and, you know, killing Palestinians. Uh, he's also funded um, a, a, a lot of, uh, like, I, I think the Holocaust Museum, too, in uh, in Israel. So, the guy has had deep pockets. He's been, you know, uh, celebrated throughout the apartheid regime. He's an apartheid lover. And it, it appears that there is uh, a price tag when it comes to democracy. Some oligarchs are good oligarchs and some are bad. And despite what Joe Biden has said, Jamal, it seems like the Israelis want to protect the ones that are funneling a lot of their ill gotten blood money uh, to the apartheid regime. So this story is not going to go away. Abramovich is in deep is in deep. Well, I don't know if he's in deep trouble. I mean, he has definitely a lot of uh, money Supporters. and property in the United States. So 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 there is an easy answer to seizing his assets because they're right there in New York and elsewhere in the U.S. We'll see. But they're we'll all see. over Europe. But we'll see. The, the reason he's getting all this support, he did, he donated millions to ADL, right? So 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 ADL received millions from him, and yes, he 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 donated. You know that that's uh, in, to me not the important issue like donating to museums and 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 Holocaust memorials or whatever. But the important thing, just uh, which he st alluded, start talking about this, that he used front companies registered in, in, in the British Virgin Islands to donate more than $100 million 
to right wing settler groups. That's right. Uh, and an, an Israeli right wing organization called the Ear David Foundation, which we actually talked about the Ear David Foundation, right. in, in, you know, commonly known as Elad, which has worked since 1990 to move. Uh, Jewish settlers into occupied East Jerusalem to displace Palestinians in Jerusalem and move these settlers in. And they also control archaeological parks and major tourist sites and the City of David uh, project. And with all the intention is to basically ethnically ethnically cleanse uh, Jerusalem from its uh, Palestinian residents and Judaize the whole area. Uh, including Silwan, where they're digging under even people's homes. Well, in, and Sheikh Jarrah, Jamal. To drive them away. So he he, he basically, I mean, uh, they, uh, this, this, this settler group, which is a very racist, uh, akin to the KKK, basically, just in, in, in this country, they received half their budget from him, half their budget. So my question to you, Jamal, why hasn't CNN reported on this? Why they hasn't want, they want they want? Why, why hasn't the New York Times reported on it's this? The same way CNN that they reported today. Just this is I'm taking you offline here a little bit. That uh, Gigi Hadid, you know, Palestinian American right. top model, made a a, a, a pledge to support uh, uh, Ukraine refugees, you know, like uh, basically donate out of her fall show uh, in 2022 to Ukrainian refugees and Palestinian refugees because they suffer from the same issue, which is occupation. CNN in its headline said, Gigi Hadid pledged to donate to Ukrainian refugees. They eliminated Palestinians. That's my point, Jamal. That's exactly my point. That, that that that's the that's the totality of our 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 show again today is the asymmetry the hypocrisy and the racism on the reporting between Ukrainian refugees Ukrainian occupation and the Palestinian refugee Syrian refugee Syrian occupation and Palestinian occupation the asymmetry and the hypocrisy and the fact that Abramovich can can get all this support from pro-Israel groups in Canada and the United States, the proof will be in the pudding about what Joe Biden said. I have no confidence that Joe Biden's words will He's going to get forth. a pass. Just like he'll, Israel gets a pass, he will get a pass. 100%. 100% he'll get a pass. And here's another part of the story which I want our listeners and viewers to understand. The United States wants a deal with Iran for the, the, the nuclear deal with Iran. The Russians are threatening to scuttle that relationship. The Israelis want to scuttle it too. So if you want to talk about really kind of degenerate bedfellows between Putin and Naftali Bennett, they have strategic interests in supporting the Russian occupation because Vladimir Putin has threatened to derail the Iran nuclear talks. So you have all these crazy strategic interests the net net is when I read the 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 story that was breaking news yesterday that Naftali Bennett is brokering a deal between Putin and Zelensky. Not only did it make me sick, I knew that you know the backstory would never come out on that. Uh, of course, the backstory would never no. come out. 
Well, uh, they're trying now to pay to paint Bennett. He's like the this peace loving man who's traveling across the globe to broker no, a peace. No, he he has his strategic interests, and his strategic interest is to scuttle the Iran nuclear deal and to stay close to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin and Naftali Bennett need, according to Bennett, need to have a strategic relationship. And he's willing to throw Joe Biden. He's willing to throw Zelensky. He's willing to throw the United States under the bus for his own strategic interests. And this story will not be told anywhere, Jamal, except, you know, here on Arab Talk and maybe some other places. But this is really, really an ugly underbelly of 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 how these things happen. And I think Abramovich is going to get a pass. You know, I think he'll get a pass. He's an Israeli citizen. He is. Well, we have a few minutes, Jess, but uh, there's hardly any news reports about COVID or Omicron. It, and as it's if bad, the invasion Jamal. of Ukraine has eradicated the pandemic. Uh, what are the repercussions? I mean... <laughs> well, let me give our listeners and viewers some breaking news. Um, Omicron has not gone away. COVID-19 has not gone away just in the last 24 hours. Except, we just, except, except in, the, in the media, it has gone except away. Except in the media, because in the last 24 hours, China has reported uh, an explosive expansion of Omicron infections, even though China has a no COVID uh, you know, exception. Like if you get COVID, you're, you're completely quarantined. They will shut down entire cities of hundreds of thousands right. of people. Despite that, China is in the grips of a, of a really catastrophic, infectious wave right now throughout and, China. And Vietnam is Vietnam. But here's another thing: New Zealand. New Zealand had a, was thinking that it had you know completely uh, bypassed the whole COVID epidemic, and it too is experiencing a massive explosion of Omicron uh, uh, infection. So Jamal, I'm going to say something that isn't popular. I'm one of those people who believe that the relaxing of the mask mandates was a mistake. And um, no, that's not popular, Jess. It's not, I know it's not, not popular. You're not gonna be, you're not gonna be popular. I, I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail. We're gonna get a lot of hate mail, <laughs> but I think it's premature. It was done politically, obviously, just like it was done politically in the opposite direction before. Now that it's being released, uh, relaxed a little bit, I think it's a huge problem, uh, especially when you have the majority of, of children under the age of you know 12 right now still not fully vaccinated and no one under the age of five vaccinated yet. Um, I think you're putting children at risk. You're putting people at risk. And um, this is not going away. It's As you said, rightly, it's gone away in the media. But if you look at what's, what's happening in terms of infection rates, we're now seeing um, these infections exploding in Asia, in New Zealand, and just to make matters, you know, worse, Jamal, I'm sorry to say this, but now there's bird flu uh, being found uh, in the East Coast of the United States. And if that if bird flu uh, starts to uh, accelerate in terms of its uh, infectious processes through the United States, we're we're in deep trouble. So unfortunately, the, the media is, um, you know, opportunistic, Jamal. You know, they're going to celebrate Ukrainian resistance, even though you and I are both really concerned about the slaughter that's going to happen, unfortunately, or could very well happen soon. So the media needs to do its job. I don't expect that it will. But, you know, we're in trouble with Omicron and we're in trouble with Ukraine.
You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, and to download all our shows are right there, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.